Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor. This week on Money Talks, man v. machine. Sumer Keynes and I will be discussing the latest study asking how soon robots will take your job. Um, and then they looked at their answers and applied them to the entire American economy and found that half half of jobs faced a more than 70% chance of being automated over the next two decades. First, though, a vote to leave the European Union could have material economic effects on the exchange rate, on demand, and on the economy's supply potential. That was Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, giving warning earlier this month that the British economy would suffer if Britain's vote to leave the EU on June 23rd. So this combination of influences on demand, supply, and the exchange rate could lead to a materially lower path for growth and a notably higher path for inflation. Mr Carney, of course, is speaking about the long-term impact of Brexit. But even in the short term, it's clear that a vote to leave would have a huge impact on Britain's biggest industry, banking. Already under pressure to cut costs, banks are not spending much on contingency plans and won't until they have to. But leaving the EU could turn their business upside down. Patrick Lane, our banking correspondent, is here with me now to discuss what banks are doing to prepare for the possibility of Brexit. Patrick, it sounds like they're not doing very much. Well, they're doing what they can and what's sensible to do. I mean, if you think about the the referendum, it's a known event. We know when the date is, June the 23rd. It's expected to move markets, especially if there's a vote for Brexit. Thereafter, it could have implications for, for credit as well as, as well as for market risk. Banks, in any case, carry out risk analyses all the time, and regulators kick their tyres all the time. And that's increased since the financial crisis of 2008. So probably in their preparations, banks have been helped by the fact that regulation is a little bit more um, intrusive than it used to be. So all that testing is, is sort of going on all the time anyway. And and then uh, the regulators, anything they can do beyond just keeping a closer eye? Oh, oh yeah, sure. I mean, the, ba- the Bank of England, for example, has already said that it will hold an extra three uh, repo auctions, which is basically a promise to lend money to banks against certain securities. There'll be another three of those immediately before and after the referendum. So if any banks are having any problems with liquidity, it will be available. Banks can also, the bigger ones anyway, can also get money from other central banks. The Bank of England has, has swap arrangements arrangements with other G7 central banks, with the Swiss central bank. So they know that it could be volatile and they're getting ready for that. Uh, that, that volatility presumably has, has big implications for markets and we, we might see big exchange rate movements, uh, big movements in certain British company shares and so on. What, what does all that mean for banks? The obvious thing, as you say, is, is sterling. And you saw earlier in the year, sterling sagged quite a lot against the euro. And it's really made all of that back up. So it's roughly where it was, I think, or even a little bit higher than it was when the referendum was announced. But if there were a no vote, which most people aren't expecting, and because most people aren't expecting it, there would be a pretty hefty movement. Some people are, are even forecasting it could be you know, 15% within six months, even 30%. 
a lot of that's you know holding a holding a wet finger up to the wind and and guessing I'm sure but people are expecting that it that it would be pretty volatile and you'd see some volatility in share price movements now of course for some people that could be good because if there's volatility there's a chance for traders to to make money so there have been reports for example that uh, hedge funds have been commissioning their own private exit polls for the day of the referendum to try and work out who's going to win or what the likely margin of victory for either side might be. Now, those exit polls can't be published. They have to be private. At least they can't be published while the polls are still open. And some uh, sophologists would, would argue that they might not be worth all that much because they can't be as sophisticated as the equivalent polls that you'd carry out during general elections because there aren't previous polls of this type to go on. So you can't work out what the change in the vote is at the polling stations you're sampling. But nevertheless, people are, have worked out that there's because there's volatility, there's going to be a money-making opportunity, so they're looking out for that. As you suggest, banks thrive on volatility, especially investment banks, right? I mean, that that's their bread and butter. But presumably, if Brexit does occur, if Britain votes to leave the EU, then, then there are all kinds of things about banks, more mundane businesses that are going to become much more difficult. That's the real concern, I think, because, you know, the referendum is a known event and you can, to some extent or to a great extent, prepare for its effect on markets. But if Britain do vote to leave the European Union, then there will be an effect, a possible effect on banks' operations. London is by far Europe's biggest financial centre. It is the place where most banks, not just British ones, not just European ones, but also banks from all over the world, have their main European base. And one of the reasons that, that they do that, one of the reasons they're concentrated in London, is a thing called a passport, which allows you, as a financial institution, to serve all the countries in the European Union from any other country without setting up local subsidiaries. So if you're in London, you can serve countries all across the EU from London. And because London is a big financial centre, it's a natural place for banks to be. Now, if Britain leaves the European Union, in theory, those passports expire. Right. So there are all these banks. I mean, think of the big American banks, Goldman Sachs, for example, main European headquarters in London, serving customers in France, in Italy, in Spain, in Germany. It's not clear that they'll be able to do that, or they'll only be able to do that after some fairly intensive negotiation if Brexit happens. Nothing is clear, which is part of the problem. All that is clear is that in the first instance, nothing will happen. Because, of course, Britain will remain a member of the European Union while it negotiates its exit agreement, which is supposed to take two years, could take a little bit longer. During that time, Britain remains in the European Union, nothing happens. After that, well... It depends on what sort of agreement for its future relations with the European Union Britain manages to negotiate. Now, it could be, in theory, that they could negotiate a deal whereby British uh, financial regulation is regarded by the European Union as equivalent in the jargon, uh, which would, in effect, I suppose, uh, mean that uh, business could, could continue as, uh, as it has been before. Now, that would make an awful lot of sense. It would suit the banks. There'd be no need for disruption of any operations. Politics might point the other way, though. So you can imagine that the French and the Germans or anybody else might be wanting to be uncharitable. They might be wanting to boost their own financial centres, for example. And another issue is that no other non-EU nation has a full passporting agreement. 
So if Britain had an arrangement like that, it would so far be unique. Maybe that's not such a surprise because the European Union's never been in this position with a member state before. But something would have to be negotiated to allow that to continue. And let's suppose that all of this is worked out. Some kind of passporting arrangement is agreed that allows a substantial share of the of the financial service industry that's in London that might otherwise migrate to stay in London. Even so, this is it's it's going to add layers of complexity and cost and and sort of balkanisation for banks, isn't it? Well, plainly that depends on what would be negotiated and on on banks' calculations in the meantime. Because if this is dragging on for a while, they may may decide, well, let's make use of a license we've got in Frankfurt or in Paris or or wherever. And in that case, they may feel that they have to move people and capital to those other jurisdictions. That would probably be less efficient than the arrangement you've got now because scale matters. What what economists call external economies of scale, the great attraction of London is that you have a big pool of skilled labour there. Those pools are smaller in other places. You also have lots of auxiliary service companies such as accountants and lawyers and so forth in London. Again, scale of those auxiliary industries is smaller in other places. So, you know, nobody is suggesting that London is going to disappear as a financial centre and nobody is suggesting that there's going to be a, any sort of an implosion or that anything will happen suddenly. But it could be that there is a fragmentation of Europe's financial industry between several centres, London remaining the biggest, probably, Frankfurt, Paris, Dublin, Luxembourg, getting a bit bigger, but lacking the scale that London does. And London would lose a bit of its scale. And that's probably less efficient all round. So that's why banks are hoping that it won't happen. They expect it won't happen. But I think they certainly hope it won't. Patrick Lane, thank you very much. To read our article on Brexit and the banks, pick up the current issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And don't forget, if you have any thoughts on what we've just discussed, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, is your job safe from robots? Nice to meet you, Veronica. What would you like to order? Just last week, Pizza Hut announced that a robot called Pepper would be taking orders from customers in its branches in Asia which it hopes will lead to shorter waiting times and, quote, a fun, frictionless user experience. I am processing your transaction now. Your transaction is completed. Please collect your meal at the counter. Enjoy. How worried should we be about the robot onslaught? Sumer Keynes, our human economics correspondent, is here to walk us through the latest research. So, Sumer, there's some very frightening research out there, isn't there? Yes, there is. So, probably the most widely cited one is by uh, Carl Frey and Michael Osborne, who are these two economists. Um, and they published a paper um, that found that around half of jobs in America were at high risk of automation. So, what they did is they spoke to lots of experts, asked them, you know, what's the potential for technology to advance so that actually... Um, robots can do this instead of a human. Um, and then they looked at their answers and applied them to the entire American economy and found that that yep, half, half of jobs faced a more than 70% chance of being automated over the next two decades. Um, that, that sounds very grim, but, but I'm hoping you're going to cheer us up. The, the, there's other research that has reached different conclusions, right? Yes. So there's a newer study um, published uh, a couple of weeks ago by the OECD, and that finds that actually, you know, we, we shouldn't be worried 
too much. So the, the earlier analysis looked at the chance that an occupation would be automated, whereas the newer research delves into the detail, looks at individual jobs and tasks within a profession. And they find that when you look at that kind of micro-level analysis, actually the jobs that people are doing kind of combine tasks, some of which are easy to automate, but a lot of which aren't. So just to give you an example, they look at one which is bookkeeping, accounting and auditing clerks. So the earlier study finds that you know people in that occupation are kind of it's pretty bad news for them 98% chance that they'll be automatable over the next two decades whereas the newer study looks at the you know they find huge variation um, between the people working in these professions and they find that actually only about a quarter of them don't involve any group work or face-to-face interaction right so only about um, a quarter are really really easy to automate the rest kind of combine stuff that actually robots are not very good at and so actually, many more jobs might be safer than you'd think. And, and when they apply that result to the whole economy, again, looking at all the tasks and, and the individuals, they find that actually only 9% of jobs are at high risk of being automatable over the next two decades. OK, so so 9% definitely sounds less scary than, than 50%. But uh, how confident are we about this result? I mean, surely one of the problems with the sort of bundle of tasks that you just described is that... As artificial intelligence gets better and as employers sort of see what the obstacles are to automating jobs, they'll just sort of dissect jobs as they're currently organized and and automate the bits that can be automated and leave a smaller workforce to to do the bits that can't. So so you're right. Their analysis does assume that these tasks won't be unbundled. They look at the kind of the current distribution of tasks within an occupation. So there is some research suggesting that it's very difficult to unbundle tasks. And that's by an economist called David Alter. And so if, you know, if history is anything to go by, then actually it might be, you know, maybe the current distribution of tasks is the right thing to be thinking about. Um, so one of the tasks that they really hone in on as uh, something that robots are really bad at doing is uh, things involving face-to-face interaction, um, you know, kind of interpersonal contact, group work. So unbundling that from the rest of your job is one thing that they think is, is going to be very difficult. However, it is worth mentioning that in the future, you might just get less of those things that seem very difficult to unbundle now. So if you think about supermarket checkouts in the past, having a friendly smile and the person processing your, your groceries, they, they seemed, you know, very linked. But now, you know, uh, supermarket checkouts, it's quite normal to have a robot telling you to have a nice day. Oh dear, so I, I was briefly feeling encouraged. Now now I'm feeling gloomy again. Uh, is there anything that can stop the march of the machines? Okay, so don't, don't feel too glum. The really important point about both of these pieces of research is that both only look at the kind of technological capacity that we might be developing over the next two decades. right? And actually, to go from that to the point at which robots have kicked us all out of our jobs is quite a big leap. right? So that the key step is it needs to make business sense for, for employers to choose robots instead of people and you know so you might have the kind of the most cutting edge machine that can give you a manicure but if you've got a manicurist willing to work on the minimum wage then actually maybe those jobs are going to be safe for quite a long time the other kind of cause for comfort is that actually lots of these 
technological changes might be implemented quite slowly, giving us time to kind of change, you know, the occupational mix of the economy. You know, perhaps we'll invent new things for us to do before the robots take all of our jobs. Right. So this is a variation on the sort of lump of labour argument, right? Fine, the robots may take all the jobs that currently exist, but by the time they've done that, there's a good chance that lots of new jobs will have been invented that nobody had previously thought of that will keep us all still employed. That that that's what you're suggesting, right? Yes. If history is any anything to go by, actually, that's that's probably what will happen. That you know the. the I guess the danger is that that will happen for, you know, very well-educated people, people who are able to cope and switch to a different profession. But for people who are, you know, low-educated, low-skilled, who are right at the bottom of the ladder right now, they might be left behind. So we need to start thinking quite carefully about, you know, how to help those people. Sumeya, thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Sumeya's piece on robots in the workplace will be published in the forthcoming issue of The Economist. You'll also be able to find it on our website, economist.com. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.